If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews 11.7 today, we'll talk about Noah. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, he moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. You know, if, to just give you an overall picture of the book of Hebrews, it's filled with exhortations for God's people to hold on and to not give up their faith in the midst of severe persecution. But you need to hold on to your faith is the exhortation despite the persecution that's around you. And so just look up in the next chapter at the end of chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, and look what he says there. He tells them another exhortation, cast not away therefore your confidence because it has great, and that word is mega, huge, a huge recompense of reward for you have need of endurance or patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. And he says the just shall live by their faith. But if any man draws back, God says, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews, but we are not of them who draw back into perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So these people were experiencing at this time, these Hebrews, severe persecution because of their faith in the Lord. And so he goes on in chapter 11 to give examples of saints of old that held on to the promises of God in a wicked, perverse, and unbelieving world. And what did all these have in common? What did all these saints have in common that enabled them to endure the trials that they went through? And it is this. They had the assurance of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And they had that. So they knew that God was with them. They knew that they were approved by God and that God would fulfill everything he had promised. That's what all of them believed. Now look at verse 4 of Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness, a testimony, that he was what? Righteous. God testified of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. He had God's assurance. God testified himself. He gave a witness, Marturo, that this man is righteous because of the gift he offered. And look at verse 5. It says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. You know who Enoch was? Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. That's who he was. And God raised his hand, and he gave a testimony. He said this. He, he said, I'd like to say something about Enoch. He pleases me, pleases me so much, I can't wait any longer. I'm bringing him right up here with me. Translated him that he should not see death. And so, really, what was the great event, though? The translation? Him being translated? I think it's what happened before his translation, that he pleased God. And it says that he walked with God, his walk of faithfulness, trusting God, seeking God, walking in obedience to his will. And that is what gave him his assurance, gave all these people, as you read through 11, Hebrews 11, that they were God's child. 
And that's what it says in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that is the only way we can please God. We've got to believe what he says about himself, his power, love, his justice, his righteousness, his trustworthiness, his holiness, and to believe that if we seek him, he will never fail to do what he promises. Because it says he is a rewarder. He'll always do what he says if we seek him first. And so that brings us down to verse 7 with Noah. So he's given, it says, a warning from God that caused him to fear and to prepare a huge boat. And right now we got the steel boys are working on an exact replica of that up in northern Kentucky. Is that not right? I mean, they're putting the handrails on and everything else. You can go up there and see what that ark would have looked like according to the dimensions of the Bible. But why was he given that warning? Why does anybody give anyone a warning? It's, you're letting somebody know that there is possible danger if they continue on the course of action that they're taking. So Joseph, of Joseph and Mary, was warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod and to return to Nazareth because he's saying there's danger there. God warned him. He says there's danger there if you continue on that course. You need to go another way, right? And God warned Noah that if the world continued on its current course of action, there was certain judgment coming. And there's only one course, only one hope of escape, and it's not in northern Kentucky, right? But it was the ark. That was the only course of escape that they could go on. And so God's telling Noah, what's he saying? He's saying, don't go on the same course that the world is taking. That's a message to us. He's telling Noah, be separate and live. That was the message that came to him. So what was the world like in Noah's day? I would say it's a lot like our world today. If you would put something there and turn back to Genesis 6, and that's where we're given the account of Noah back in Genesis and look what it says, beginning in verse 1, Genesis 6, 1. And it says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, O oh, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And look at verse 5, and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And look down in verses 11 and 12. The writer goes on to say, Moses, that the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So the whole earth, he's saying, was filled with violence and sexual impurity. He's saying multiple times there, it was corrupted, spoiled, putrid. Is what that word would mean. It's like, you know, when you've got a dead mouse in your house, it's just that putrid odor, right? You just want to get rid of it. And that's speaking of our world today. It's upside down, corrupt, and putrid. 
And you know what people are asking now? All people in America, what's going on? <laughs> Why did you say that? Because listen here, the riots, terrorism, and all this confrontation with, with police, it's not new to this age. For those of you that are old enough to remember, it was worse in the 60s and 70s even then. I think it's going to start getting worse now. Well, we went through a period of time, it wasn't all that big, but if you watch an old documentary, which I have recently, about what went on in the United States back in the 60s and 70s, this place was chaotic. It was really chaotic. Bombings taking place, terrorism within our own nation. Groups like the Weather Underground, they bombed the Pentagon, they bombed Congress, they bombed LaGuardia Airport. There was bombs, hundreds of them going off all the time. And there was a popular singer during that era. I don't listen to him now, but he had a popular song back in the day that it was a smooth song because he was a smooth singer. His name was Marvin Gaye, and he had this easy-to-listen-to pop music. But he wrote a song that, to listen to it, if you didn't listen to the words, you're like, I, I never much listen to words to a lot of songs. I just like tunes or whatever. I might know the chorus. But this word, he's writing this song about racial tension and the police getting into it with people. And listen to the words of this song. It's called What's Going On. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know you've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. And he went on in the song to say, picket lines and picket signs. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. And then he goes into the chorus. Oh, what's going on? He's asking the question. What's going on? Oh, yeah, what's going on? Ah, what's going on? That's how the song goes. A lot better than what I said it to hear it sung. But listen, that's the question we have. Isn't that the question that's going on right now in our country by blacks and whites and Hispanics? Everybody, they're saying, what's going on? We just had 60 people shot in Chicago over this past 4th of July weekend in predominantly black neighborhoods. 32 were shot within a 15-hour period, including children, with these drive-by shootings. What's going on is the question. Alton Sterling is his name, a young black man, is dead down in Louisiana, shot by policemen. Now, we don't know the full story to what happened there, because a lot of times it's not what you see in these little clips that they put on YouTube. But people are saying, what's going on, right? We got 12 policemen shot in the back, five dead. One had just been married for two weeks. And how that couldn't affect you, it did, it affected me watching all that. It grieved me. I'm like, I don't ever remember a time when the police are getting ambushed like that, trying to protect people. What's going on? And what's going on when I can't even, literally, this is true, I can't even go up the street to a local restaurant and I'm greeted at the drive through window by a transvestite. I'm thinking, man, I really need to pray over my food. And then... I, a little further up the street the other day, the person that's going to seat us is, 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 it was just openly gay. I'm not preaching hate against these people, but I'm saying, that's all new. What's going on? What's going on with this world? And I'll tell you what's going on. It's what's been going on since the garden, and that's sin. But what's really going on is our world is headed to Genesis 6. We just read it. Corrupt before God and filled with violence. But listen, the world of Genesis 6 that we read here and we just read is not the world that God created in Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, God had declared everything to be what? He said it is very good. 
And now here, just a few chapters up in the book, it's only fit for destruction, this creation that he had made. Look again at verse 5. It says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so he looks down and he sees the condition of his creation at this point, right? <laughs> and it caused him literal pain in his heart because that's what it says in verse 6. After it says he looked down in verse 5, look what it says in verse 6. And it says, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. And look what it says there at the end. And it grieved him in his heart. Grieved means literal pain in his heart. To see what had become of his creation. Because listen, God is not a robot. You know, he has emotions and he's affected by what happens. And we see that even in the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Jesus not at times angry when he would see sin? And was he also not moved with compassion? And he says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God's not unmoved by what he sees in our world. So he's not so much he's sorry he's made man, but he is sorry over what man has made of himself through sin. And it's just at this point in Genesis, it is just unbridled sin, violence and sexual impurity. And listen, that was never God's intention. And so look in verse 7, and the Lord said, as a result of that, he said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. And so his grief and pain is also accompanied by his anger. He says, I'm just going to have to destroy everything on that earth, man and beast. And so think about it. How do you think he feels when he looks down on our country, on this world that we live in now? With all the terrorism, riots, murder, homosexuality, transvestites, the divorce, heroin epidemics, internet pornography. And just over here in Louisville, you know, we've got sex trafficking. is a big issue there. We don't hear about that much here. It's going on and it's terrible. Never God's intentions. And it's got to grieve his heart as he looks down on this world now and calls pain. Because our world, as I said, is a lot like the world in Noah's day, right? There's also something else that God saw at this same time. And look in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Do you know what the name Noah means? The name Noah means comfort. And I would say he was the one comfort to God's pained heart. And it says he found grace or favor in God's eyes. And to me, verse 8, you read all of that up to that point, it comes like a glass of cool water to drink, doesn't it? You got all this sin and putrid and violence and evil and God's ready to destroy the earth, but then it's but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, grace or favor. And that's where Noah's righteousness began, right? Because he wasn't born walking with God, was he? He really wasn't. But God looked down in his grace, and he gave Noah faith that produced a righteous life. And he is the one bright spot in an otherwise dark world. Because it says he was a just man and perfect in his generation, and that Noah walked with God. Look at verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. You think about this. Here is a man, the only person 
In a world of millions, if not billions of people, this is one man that is walking with God through all this corruption. Think about that. That, that is an amazing thing. And listen, we need to be like him. Noah found grace in God's eyes. He was God's companion. He walked with God. And listen, he was the only one, it says in the Bible, that was walking with God at that time. And that's what he's calling us to do in this corrupt world. That's the message today. Walking with God in this ungodly world. That's what we're called to do. So look in verse 13. God said this to Noah. He warns him that he's going to get ready to destroy the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then look in verse 17. It says, and behold, I, even I, God says, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. He's warns him, the earth is going to be destroyed. That's what he's doing right there. But less, he goes on to tell Noah, here's the blessing and the word for us. He says, that doesn't apply to you, though, Noah. I've given you a promise because we read verse 17 about the flood that would come and destroy the earth. But look what he goes on to say to Noah. There's that but again. And the buts are great because he says in verse 18, but with thee, that's what I'm going to do to the rest of the world. But he says, but with thee will I establish my covenant and you will come into the ark, you and thy sons and thy wives and thy sons' wives with thee. So what did Noah have to do as far as exercising his faith that God had given him through grace. So he had to exercise faith both in the warning and in the promise, didn't he? And we have to have both. We have to have faith in the threats of judgment that God has in the Bible and in the faith of his promises. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, he who doesn't believe God will punish sin will not believe that God will pardon it through the atoning blood. And he who does not believe that God will cast unbelievers into hell will not be sure that he will take believers into heaven. So Noah had to believe the warning that awful judgment was coming. And that faith produced a fear that motivated him to build the ark and save his house. But what's he having to believe in? He's believing in something that would seem highly unlikely to say the least. It had never been seen before. What does it say at the beginning of Hebrews? It says, by faith we know that God created the worlds by a spoken word. But we can't see how that happens. Why? We can't see how God created the worlds. We just have to trust that what he says is true. Trust his word. And that's the same with Noah. No one had ever seen a flood before. Rain coming from the skies, the floodgates open. And so he couldn't see what that deluge would look like. He had no idea, right? He had to trust God's word that it was coming. There is a flood of water coming to destroy the earth. And we may not know what the manifestations that we're believing for in answers to prayer, how they'll come or what they'll look like, do we? When his power is manifested, we may not know exactly how they'll come or what they'll look like. And we just have to trust, as Noah did, that God will do as he says. I mean, I don't know what it looks like. I've never seen an arm recreated and come out like the man with the withered hand. I've never seen anything like that. I don't know what that would look like to be standing there observing that. 
But what do we have to do? We got things like that we're believing for. I don't know how that's going to look, how that's going to feel, or whatever else. But we just have to trust that God says, my power will be manifested to do that and things like that. And we know that from his word. And that's what we have to trust. So we have to be like Noah. We have to believe that God is a rewarder of those that seek him. And you know, that word rewarder means, literally it means one who pays wages. We have to trust. Now, it's not that we earn the promises or earn his power. I'm not saying that. But that is what the word means in the Greek. One who pays wages. He says, you seek me, you'll be rewarded. I'm not going to leave you hanging. We have his word for that. Diligently seek him. Have to believe who he is. And that's what we have going through all of Hebrews chapter 11. Well, listen, you've got to know, Noah's believing something that would have been, been impossible to the natural mind. And the scoffers, they would have just had to keep getting louder and louder and louder as time went on. And you think about it. He was literally on his own in the then known world. No support. I mean, at least we've got support here with this church. We're trusting God to perform something, a miracle in our life. We've got a lot of support. People that will pray for you, people that will encourage you. But Noah didn't have any of that. And he had to stake his life and bank everything he owned on what God revealed to him. But he wasn't moved by public opinion, was he? The circumstances improving, like a few clouds coming overhead. Eh, he didn't need that, not Noah. Or even what he might have thought about himself. He staked everything on the bare fact of what God had revealed to him and what God had shown him. Because here's what he's doing. He was a righteous man, had a regenerated heart, and he's looking on this world and the corruption and the violence and the evil and the debauchery. And he had to be saying in his righteous soul, this cannot go on forever. God will punish it. Because you men, whether you understand it or not, are responsible moral agents which they are. Sinners are. So he wasn't moved by political correctness or peer pressure from society because he would have known what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. I always like this section here. Ecclesiastes 8. Solomon wrote this. And this was the problem in Noah's day and it's the problem in our day with people. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God. And that's Noah. It said Noah was moved with fear. It'll be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But Solomon went on to write, but it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he fears not before God. Does that not describe our world of today? I think it does. And Noah, you know what he did? It says he preached that message. That for those of you that will fear God and obey him and live a righteous life, it'll be well with you. He preached that message. But if you don't, I've been warned by God. He's shown me something. I'm sharing this with you all. Unless you repent, you'll perish. I believe that. And he preached that. It says he was a preacher of righteousness, right living, get right with God. Said he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, 120 years. And I've only been doing this for 10 months or more. 
counting prison, maybe six, seven, eight years, 120 years. And yet how many heeded his call to repent? Zero. And you're saying, well, man, I guess he just didn't have much of an anointing. He didn't get many results. But yet, what did the Bible say about this man? It said he walked with God, that he was a just man, perfect and blameless in his days. He was a great man of faith. That's what we're reading about here. And he believed surely God is going to judge sin and destroy the world. But people today, you know what? Like we talked about in Ecclesiastes, they live as if God is not going to judge sin and that they aren't afraid of his judgment. Just brazenly living in sin. And that is Romans 1. Because God says in Romans 1, because men don't want to acknowledge his power, truth, and authority, it says three times, what does it say? He gave them up. Three times it's written to homosexuality, to lesbianism, and to reprobate minds. It doesn't just stop there because there's a whole list of sins at the end of Romans chapter 1. Wicked sins listed at the end of that chapter. But the last thing Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is this. All these people that commit these sins, this homosexuality, lesbianism, all these perversions, he says, who knowing the judgment of God, they know they deserve judgment. That they which commit such things are worthy of death he says they not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They clap their hands. They applaud other sinners. That's the insanity of the world. But compare that to Noah's faith in God. What did that do? It produced not this brazen lack of fear, but it produced a fear in him. It was his motivation. It says that Noah was moved with fear. He knew God's wrath was coming in an ungodly world, and he didn't want to be any part of it, did he? So he began to prepare that ark to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. And so Noah was to his generation what we are to be in our generation. So if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. And Paul writes in Philippians 2.12, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. What does he say? Work out your own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He says, do all things without murmuring and disputings. And look at verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So just as Noah was moved with fear and prepared the ark, we're supposed to work out our own salvation, he says, with fear and trembling. And why the fear and trembling? Because of who is the one that is working in our hearts? God. For it is God, he says, which works in you. The Holy One of Israel. The one who is a consuming fire. We should fear him and show by our righteous lives that we're working out our salvation that he's given us. Right? Not working for it, but working it out. Let God do the work in us that will bring us to the place that we're what? Just like Noah. Blameless and harmless. And so what does he say is the evidence of a blameless and harmless life? Look in verse 14. He says, do all things without murmuring and disputing. 
without grumbling and arguing. Wow, that's a tall order there, isn't it? <laughs> so to do that, to be harmless and blameless, you won't complain about the circumstances you find yourself in when you find them. So whether it's the company you keep, life's bad breaks you get, or traffic you're stuck in, or how you feel, whatever, you'll realize that God is in control, won't you? If you're going to do all things without murmuring and complaining, if you're his child, that all things work together for good. Because when we read the Old Testament in Numbers, Israel complained about their circumstances in the wilderness, and God said, you're really complaining about me when you do that. It's a lack of faith. And he judged them. It says in 1 Corinthians 10 that they were destroyed by the destroyer because of their murmuring. And Paul's just telling us here, don't do that. He says, instead, do all things without murmuring and disputings that you may be what? Blameless and harmless. Because that is how he described Noah. Isn't that what we want to be? Don't we want to be delivered out of the judgment that's coming to this world? It's coming. It may be slowly coming, or it may be quickly coming, I don't know, but it is definitely coming. Because God said of Noah that he was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and that Noah walked with God. And so just as Noah walked with God in that corrupt world, we're to walk, what did we just read here in Philippians, as shining lights in our dark world. We're to be the sons of God without rebuke, he says in verse 15 without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so what we have in Genesis 6 is God sets Noah in contrast to the rest of the world because what were they like? They were violent. You couldn't trust them. They'd do you harm. They were sexually perverse. It was a sick society. And in utter contrast to that, God shows us, but Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous man. You think about that. Of all the world, he's the only person you could really trust him, right? Blameless in his time. He was an upright man, a genuine man, not a twisted person. A word from him was gold, a just person, righteous in all respects, from the inside out. That's how he was. He was like Job. God said of Job to Satan, he said, have you considered my servant Job? He said, there is none like him in the earth. A perfect and upright man. One that fears God and hates evil. Imagine that. To say, he says, there is none like Job, God told the devil, in all the earth. And that's the kind of people that God is looking for today. That's what he's looking for is us, people that will shine as lights in this utterly crooked and perverse world. And we should be said that there is none like them in the earth with the word that we have, right? If we believe it and walk with God as Noah did, and that's what it's going to take to be delivered. That's what it's going to take to be the few that are saved. Amen. It really will. We're going to have to be saints holy people that fear God. And so it's not surprising. You read Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 14, God pronounces judgment on Israel. He's going to do them in and destroy them. And he singles out three saints from the Old Testament. Daniel, Noah, and Job. And listen to what he says. He says, Son of man, when the land sins, this is Ezekiel 14, when it sins against me by trespassing grievously, then I will stretch out my hand upon it, 
and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and I will send famine upon it. I will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. And so what delivered Daniel, Noah, and Job? What did God say? What did I just read? He said it was their righteousness that delivered them, right, from the judgment of God. Men concerned, those three men were concerned about obeying God. They sought first, Matthew 6, that's what they lived. They sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And listen, all three of those men were in hostile environments, just like we are today, amongst wicked men. Yet, all three, Daniel is an amazing story, all three stayed true to God. And we have to ask ourselves, is that going to be us in the coming days? Are we going to stay true to the Lord? Are we going to still be able to sing that song like Noah could have sang? I think he wrote the song, though none go with me, yet I will follow. Because he was the only one. There was none going with him. And he was a man that was committed to living a righteous life. And that's what his faith produced. He walked with God on a daily basis. And that's where the habits of faith are formed. I believe Noah, he trusted God with all his daily needs, his daily bread, his children, his work, answers to prayer, and all the life's little trials that come our way, he took to the Lord. He didn't just try to deal with them himself. That's what it means to walk with the Lord. And he probably would have said, what a friend I have in Jesus. I walk with him every day. He provides my every desire, and that is why I pray. I think that's how he would have written that song. Just like his great-grandfather Enoch, it says he walked with God. Men that desired companionship with God. And that's how he wants us to live, walking with him, talking to him about everything in prayer. That's how it's done. Experience his presence on the Emmaus Road, walking down the road of Emmaus with him where our hearts are burning because of his word, because of his presence, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good on a daily basis, walking with God. We don't know when the flood's going to come, do we? They didn't know in Noah's day. Noah didn't even know that. And he just had to determine that he was going to walk with God. That's what he did on a daily basis. So we have to develop habits of prayer, reading the Word, seeking Him. That is how faith is produced, and it won't come overnight. Because that is how the early church lived. In Acts 9, it says this, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and it says they were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit were multiplied. So the early church we read, they walked in the fear of the Lord. That's how Noah walked. So let me ask you, is it a vain thing to fear the Lord? So that's what motivated and compelled Noah to move and build the ark. Produced obedience in him, didn't it? But you know what? It produced something else. You know what else it produced? Noah walking in the fear of the Lord, and as a result, righteousness, it saved his house. Hebrews 11, back where we were, it says he was moved with fear, and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. So Noah's faith had an impact on his family. His fear of God and righteous life, it brought what? It brought his family to a saving knowledge of God, like the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer like Abraham, like Rahab, like others in the Bible. 
their fear and righteous life, it didn't just affect them, it affected their families. Proverbs 14 says this, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. Wow. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and a man that walks that way, he says his children will have a place of refuge. That was that way with Noah. It was that way with Abraham, the Philippian jailer. And that is no small thing for me, honestly, as I stand here. Because outside of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the next thing that means the most to me is my family and their salvation and my children. And that is my daily prayer. My children all coming to know the Lord. And so how is that household salvation found? Look at Noah. Look at the other people I talked about. It's called, comes through fearing the Lord and departing from evil. It says, he that truly fears the Lord will depart from evil. Here's that Philippian jailer. He's not trembling because he sees this earthquake happen. He's trembling out of the holiness of God that was manifested at that time. And he comes before Paul kneeling in fear. And what was Paul's answer to him? He says, what must I do? He's come face to face with the holiness of God. And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and thy house. How could Paul say that? Because he knew the word, right? And he knew this man's fear and righteous life, the family would follow. And that's, men, what we need to understand. If, if you're living an ungodly life, you can't expect God to bless your family. They won't have that refuge. But if we fear the Lord and walk in a righteous life, they will follow. That's the way it works. And so God rewarded him. Back in Genesis 7-1, Here's what God says. Here's how he was rewarded. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thine house into the ark. So he says, Hey, you and all your house, come into the ark. It's ready. We're ready to go. But here's why he says, Why? For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. He says, You and your family come on in the ark. And the reason is, is because I've seen your life. I've seen your righteous life in this generation, and I'm not going to just save you and leave you heartbroken with your family drowning behind you. No, they will come in that ark with you. That ought to be a big motivation to us men and women to live a righteous life. And so not only that, Hebrews 11:7 doesn't just state that he saved his family, but it goes on to say that Noah's faith also condemned the world. So the world didn't believe God. They scoffed at his word of holiness and righteousness that Noah preached. And listen, Noah didn't argue with him. He wouldn't have gotten anywhere anyways. He didn't argue with him. How could he? So he just simply told them the truth of what he knew, that God is going to punish sinners. And look, all we have to do, fellows, is look back. Everybody has died. Nobody's living forever. Everybody eventually gets old and died, right, that has lived before us. And all people at that time would have known the story of Adam and Eve and what took place there. So it says that Noah condemned the world by his preaching and I believe also by his lifestyle because every tree he cut down, every board he sawed, every peg he put in place, that was his faith, not just in word, but that was his faith in action, visible actions. And so the world could see by Noah's actions and what was in his backyard that Noah believed God. They could see that. And they had to have at one time or another, I believe every person on that earth that knew about Noah, they had to have a prick in their heart that 
this guy might be right. We keep scoffing him and making fun of him, but I just got a feeling he might be right. They had to have that occasion where that happened. You know, this guy is blameless. I can't find a single thing wrong with him, unlike everybody else I know, right? And he is so sure of himself. What if he's right? They had to ask themselves that. And I was talking with his older man recently who told me he didn't think the Bible was true. Now there's some good things in it, but just a lot of contradictions and all that. I'm not prepared to change my beliefs and lifestyle because of what the Bible said. And he said, I'm just an old skeptic. That's what he told me. It was a nice conversation. It wasn't antagonistic, but I just asked him, I said this, I said, well, what if when you die, you find out you were wrong? I said, where will you be then? And he says, well, that might be a bit of a problem. And I'm sure Noah raised that question many times. Because listen, people haven't changed, have they? They haven't changed from his day into our day. They talk the same today as they talked in Noah's day. And 2 Peter 2 tells us that judgment is certain. He says, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And since we know from God's word that judgment is coming because of the sin people live, let me ask you, how can we be silent? How can we be silent? Noah wasn't. Because listen, everybody is going to be involved in the day of judgment, aren't they? Everybody in this world. And listen, God has only provided how many ways out? Not three, has he? All his other religions aren't going to work. He's provided one way out, hasn't he? Just like with the ark, that was the only way out of that flood. And he's only provided one way out, and that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So was Noah disappointed? Was his faith in vain? And that's the whole purpose of Hebrews, is to show nobody's faith is in vain if it's in God. He says, cast not away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. And it goes on to say at the end of Hebrews 11:7 that Noah became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. He became an heir. So he gave up all his time. He gave up all his money, all his resources to obey God because of why. He saw this faith I'm exercising, everything I'm giving up, everything I'm selling out, all the mockery I'm taking, it has got a reward. That's what Hebrews 11:6. without faith it's impossible to please him. We've got to believe he's a rewarder, that everything we suffer, give up for his sake, will be worth it one day. <laughs> Let him mock. Noah had to be saying, I may be one against a million, but I know that my payday is coming. And Moses did the same thing. It goes on, if you read in Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. You know, Moses was an heir of Egypt. He was going to be the next Pharaoh, the richest kingdom on earth at that time. He had access to all of its wealth. But it says he turned his back on all of that to, just like with Noah, have a simple walk with God in a righteous and blameless way. And he says, I'll take all these reproach because I consider the reproach for Christ's sake 
greater riches than anything this world could give me. Do we really look at it that way? But that's what Moses said. And how could he do that? Because when God gives a man faith in his heart, he also gives him vision. Now we can see, if you're a Christian, what others can't see. There is a treasure of God waiting for us. As it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him that walk with him, that want to have that ongoing daily relationship with him. And Paul said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Amen? Amen. That's the reward that he holds before us. So as we said the other night, these are the times that try men's souls. That's what we're in right now, and that's what we're living in, and it's going to get progressively worse because it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, and they're coming, and they're going to come more. And God's looking down on America. He's looking down on this country and this world, and he's seeing that the imaginations of men's hearts are becoming only evil continually and covering the land more and more, violence covering the land. Sexual perversion is becoming the norm, is it not? It is. I could show you statistics on the percentage of people in church and out of church that thought living together was okay. It's more than doubled within about 20 years. And the last year I saw that on was 2012. I had all kinds of statistics that did say that this world is not progressively becoming more violent, evil, and perverse. We're like the frog in the water. We don't realize it because we're in it. We don't think that much like we used to. Back when I was a kid, if a couple lived together, that was embarrassing. You didn't go around advertising that when I was a teenager. Now it's nothing. Or if you had a baby out of wedlock, which happened when I was in school, and they got all that quietly, whatever. Now it's like we have baby showers for it. What's happened? Sin is no longer considered sin. We're too used to it. We're too numb to it. And it's grieving God. But God looks down and sees there's a person that is different because I've done a work in their life. They found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And are you one of those? Have you experienced the life-changing grace of God in your heart? The grace that appears to a man like Noah. And what does that do, though, when that grace comes? What does it say in Titus? When that grace comes and appears, it will cause you to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Because grace, if it does anything, it produces holiness. If it's not producing holiness, your idea of grace and the love of God is twisted. Because that's what it says in Titus. The grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us something. So let me ask you, could it be said of you by others? Look at my neighbor. Or look at this person I work with. This person here, they are different. They're a just person, a blameless person. In a way, they, they make me uncomfortable to be around them, but I can tell something about There's something different about them. They have a walk with God. People can be able to tell that about you, even if they don't want to admit it. And that was Noah's secret. He walked with God. He was God's companion. He knew God, and he knew he was a child of God. He had that assurance in his heart. You have to have that to get through these times. Faith is the assurance, the knowing 
of things hoped for. We've got to have that witness where the Holy Spirit has told you, you are a son of God, and you're not wondering about that. And that comes through a holy life. And that's what enabled Noah. You think about it, like I said, he's standing alone for 120 years. You're not going to do that if you don't have this assurance that you're walking with God, that God approves of you, and that you're his child. 120 years he did that. And it was that faith that enabled him, as we said, to condemn the world and saved his family. So when Noah entered that ark, you know what he did? He entered his casket, so to speak, right? Because he was dead to the world, but he was safe in the arms of Jesus, wasn't he? <laughs> it's like we had happen today. He passed through the waters of judgment in that ark, didn't he? And he came out how? How did he come out of that? Alive unto God. And he walked with God, if you read the account, for another 350 years after he came out of that ark. He walked with God 350 more years. And so that's the message I have today. We're living in a time similar to Noah's. And he feared God. He lived a righteous and holy and blameless life. And he walked with God through that world and made it through that untainted. And that's what he's calling us to do, each and every one of us here that calls themselves a Christian. When we go out here in this world that's polluted, it's distorted, it's twisted, it's gotten into our hearts and minds more than we even realize and he's saying we need to be harmless and blameless, Philippians 2, without murmurings and disputings, without arguing and complaining. That is how we need to live, trusting our lives to God, that we're lights that are shining in this dark world to the glory of God, to the glory of our Father. Amen? And also we can be preachers of righteousness because unlike Noah's day, I still think God will bring people in our past that will come to a saving knowledge of him. It's not going to just be us and no more, right? And we want to reach those people. We want to pray that God sends them our way and send that we have a testimony and a life and a joy about us that will attract them to the message, attract them to the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they can be saved. It shouldn't be in our heart to see anybody judged. Not when you see what God's delivered you from. I know what I got delivered out of, right? And that should be our motivation and the fear and holiness of God. Amen. Let's determine to walk with him. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. And you said that these stories, these testimonies of the saints in the Old Testament are examples for us, Lord, that we can follow their examples, both good and bad, what to avoid and what to do. And I ask, Father, that you give all of us in here a heart like Noah to walk with you, to be a companion with you, to be conscious of your presence every day in our lives and to take everything big and small constantly through the day in prayer to you that we can just know that we are yours have that assurance have it burn brighter lord that witness of the spirit i ask that you'll give that to everyone that's a christian in this room and for those that aren't lord i ask that you'll deal with their hearts and show them this certain judgment that's coming that if you're a sinner god will judge sin but yet you have made a way of escape and if they will just submit to you and repent and ask you to forgive them that you're more than willing to do that. And I just ask that you'll speak to everyone in here today. And we thank you for your word and your warnings and your promises. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.